world music and, and world languages are the same thing. Music to me is a language, whether you're playing jazz and you grow up speaking it and, and everything, it becomes native to you, intrinsic into you, you, you can uh, associate with it. And so um, I just find that when I go to different places and learn traditional songs that they have their own language, they have their own scale, they have their own way that they sing them. And I've heard songs that I didn't realize were so important, the Delaware or the Lenape, uh, the stick dance. Uh, for example, is a song that we sing in the longhouse, in the Iroquois longhouses. It's um, during the social dances, they, they sing that song last to honor the, the Delaware people. And, and um, that song has a huge significance to them. That was musician and composer Dennis Heary talking about traditional Native American songs. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. If music is a language, then Dennis Yuri is a multilinguist. He is known primarily as a Native American composer and musical director, writing the music for Black Elk Speaks in Denver and LA, and reimagining and composing new music for the annual production of Unto These Hills in Cherokee, North Carolina, which he continues to musically direct. Yuri is also a highly regarded musician, playing the flute, as well as other Native American instruments, like the rattle and the drums, and performing on television and in films like Ken Burns' documentaries, The West and Lewis and Clark. But there's another musical side to Dennis Heary. His background is in jazz, piano, and cabaret, and he's maintained and nurtured these musical roots. He's played in many New York City venues, including the Knickerbocker, Tavern on the Green, and the Waldorf Astoria. In the past few years, he's teamed up with cabaret artist Ann Osmond and added singing to his repertoire as the duo performs an eclectic program of jazz piano and American song. I met Dennis Yuri at the Festival of the Voice in Phoenicia, New York, where true to form, he was the director of world music for the festival and performing jazz cabaret with Ann Osmond. Given his musical versatility, I was curious about his upbringing. So when we sat down to talk, I wanted to know if Dennis came from a musical family. My mom was musical. She was a, a dancer, and she loved to dance. And um, she said that um, even the Rockettes wanted to hire her at one point, but she turned them down because she thought that when she got older, they wouldn't want her anymore. <laughs> we had a piano at my house. I pretty much taught myself how to play. And she had a couple books there, and we sang. We sang in a car where we were going places, and we went to church. I learned the songs from church and went home and played them. So I kind of just taught myself with the, whatever was there at the house. First of all, where were you Where were you born? Where were you brought up? I was brought up in the Catskill Mountains um, in Shandaken, New York. My dad was a ginseng hunter, hunted ginseng in the woods. He was um, Iroquois, and he uh, would take me in the woods. He'd show me all the plants and the trees and all the different ways to find ginseng. and. Uh, I was never on a hiking trail until I was about 18 because we would just go straight in and come straight out. <laughs> Did you listen or sing traditional Native American music when you were a kid? No. You know, there was a resurgence of that. Uh, that started when I moved to New York in my um, late 20s and 30s. I met a lot of people down there, a lot of Native people. Now, when I was younger, my dad would take us to powwows and we'd go to different places and events. But... Um, I never uh, did listen to the music much and uh, didn't learn it because I didn't really grow up traditionally. I grew up just listening mostly to uh, pop music and Stevie Wonder, Elton John, things like that when I was a kid and uh, playing along with them. 
When did you rediscover, or discover for the first time, Native American music? I think I discovered it when I moved to New York. I was down there in the late 80s, and I actually met a lot of young people like myself, and we were kind of discovering our roots, discovering uh, or rediscovering traditional songs and traditional music, because um, a lot of it was either banned from different places or it, it wasn't carried on because there was a, uh, you know, a huge effort by the federal government during the um, 50s, especially, to take the Indian out of, out of people, and so they weren't allowed to speak their languages, and they weren't allowed to uh, do their traditional dances and things like that. And it's very historical at this point that a lot of it has come back. A lot of it has been rediscovered and passed on, and, and um, I, I really enjoy finding songs that were lost that was exactly going to be my question, because when you were doing this, it must have been very difficult to find the songs and find the music. You must have had to have found elders who could teach you. Well, I consider myself more of a performer and a musician, you know, and, and so I, I don't really look at it as far as the, um, the research of the music. So I find these songs... They kind of come to me different ways. When I was working on the West for Ken Burns, they played for me a um, wax cylinder recording of Chief Joseph singing an honoring song. And I just thought that that was just so fabulous. And we did that song. We recorded it for Sony Classical. And now I play it. I sing it wherever I go. And, you know, I love that song. I've heard songs that I didn't realize were so important, the Delaware or the Lenape uh, stick dance, for example, is a song that we sing in the Longhouse, at the Iroquois Longhouses. It's during the social dances, they, they sing that song last to honor the, the Delaware people, and, and um, that song has a huge significance to them. And I also met a guy from South Dakota who was uh, doing the West with us, and he heard me play the flute, and he uh, said that he had a song that he wanted to, to give to me to learn on the flute. And he gave me a tape of it, and I learned that song. And uh, he said that he sang that song back at home, and elders were coming up to him saying, you know, we haven't heard that song in 50 years. We love that song. Because I think it has a direct relationship between languages, with languages. And I feel like music, world music, and, and world languages are the same thing. Music, to me, is a language. Whether you're playing jazz and you grow up speaking it and, and everything, it becomes native to you, intrinsic into you. You, you can uh, associate with it. And so, um, you know, he was playing me a song from, the, I think it was a Dakota Sioux. And I just find that when I go to different places and learn traditional songs, that they have their own language. They have their own scale. They have their own way that they sing them. And I worked in Cherokee, North Carolina, for the um, Cherokee Nation down there on their show, One to These Hills. And they asked me to rewrite the show about six years ago. And uh, before I ever wrote a piece of music, I spent the whole time learning from an elder who had recorded songs down there. And I got the CD and I transcribed them all and just learned them inside and out the best that I could. So that when I started to compose music for the show, I would already have that inside me. I would be able to speak that language. How did you begin to play cabaret music? Well, that's kind of roundabout. I, um, I grew up here and uh, was playing music. I started playing when I was only eight years old in the church. For eight years, I played in the Catholic Church, played the organ, 
and then um, started playing in the bars also when I was about 15. And eventually the two things collided because play it Saturday evening, <laughs> late into the morning, and then have to get up and play the next morning. So at some point, it all switched. So I moved to New York temporarily to, with a roommate down on uh, the Upper East Side, just shared a, an apartment. And a singer came up from Miami, and she uh, said she needed an accompanist and a pianist. And so I uh, took my big old Fender Rhodes, and I, she told me there was work down there. And I was only 19, and I was just so excited to just play music. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. So I took my big piano, and I stuck it on the bus in Woodstock and got to New York City, and I discovered my, my piano was considered freight, <laughs> and they charged me a couple hundred dollars. I didn't know. And took the bus all the way to Miami. And I lived down there for two years and played all over the place at all the big hotels and everything. And whatever I could do, I just wanted to play. And then my dad had a stroke, and I came and moved back home. And I lived back home until he passed away in 1982. And then I um, decided it was time to get back into playing more. And then I moved down to, to New York. And actually, it took me a couple of years to get a job even playing any music. And it was very difficult. But I finally uh, was actually playing at the Knickerbocker for a while. I was subbing for Harry Connick Jr. whenever he would go out of town on Monday nights. So I'd play his spot. I was playing six nights a week, you know, and that's how I ended up back in New York. When you were playing at the Knickerbocker Hotel, were you singing as well as playing piano? I wasn't singing so much at that time. Uh, my singing has only just had a resurgence right now, and a Festival of the Voice has a lot to do with it. But at the time, I was considered myself a pianist, and I really um, worked very hard to uh, work at my jazz playing. I got interested in jazz. A friend of mine, his father was a jazz trumpet player, and we would listen to more of the uh, contemporary fusion jazz. We'd listen to the Crusaders when they had the trombone players with them, and, and we'd listen to George Benson and all of the more, more contemporary to me. I, I could um, relate to it more, I think. And then later on, I, started, I studied at the Jazzmobile, up in Harlem, Billy Taylor's Jazzmobile. I studied up there with some great people and just, you know, started getting more and more into it. And it was almost simultaneously that I discovered the Native American music at the same time. So I was kind of learning two languages, I would say, at the same time down in New York. How do these two languages speak to one another? Well, they speak to each other in that um, the jazz that I would consider what I've done in the past with the uh, traditional music is free improvisation. I don't consider the traditional jazz um, necessarily, but the native music, some of it that I use, has a uh, certain scale to it. So you can improvise along that scale. You can uh, create as atmosphere. You can create feeling, the emotion. You know, A lot of native music doesn't have words to it. It's almost like I wouldn't call it scatting. I would say that scatting is a, is a language unto itself that, that you don't use words. You use emotions and feelings. And in native songs, uh, the same thing applies almost. I've had people come up to me after I've sung a, a song just using vocables, and they say, well, you know, what, what did that mean? What were the words? And I say, there really were no words, because in some traditions, it's considered like the words take away from the feeling of the song, because you have, you're being given words, you can't like understand just the meaning of that song. Traditional uh, native songs, they have songs for everything. You know, they have songs for children being born and going down to the stream to get water. There's, there's songs, it's just a vast, vast, there's thousands and thousands of songs all across what we call Turtle Island, North America. I think that's how they relate. I learned those Cherokee songs and um, thought I had them down perfectly, but when I went down there, every singer sings them their own way. They interpret the song their own way. Their own way. They just get them inside of them. And it's been very exciting for me because I consider myself mostly a composer. I love to improvise, and I love to play jazz. 
But also when I'm composing, I like to bring people in the studio and I'll have a, a lot of different native instruments, like a big powwow drum or rattles in my flute and things like that. And they can bring their bass clarinet and they, um, all their percussion instruments and the piano and anything that, that we want to play and just create, create amongst ourselves. So I guess that's how they would um, combine or how they relate to each other. How did you establish yourself as a composer of Native American music to the point that you would work with Ken Burns on two things, on Lewis and Clark as well as the West, and go down to uh, North Carolina and create Onto These Hills Mm -hmm. or rewrite them for the Cherokee Nation. Well, as I said, when I was living in New York, we had a project down there that was put together by a person, and uh, uh, he brought in a lot of different Native people, and he was trying to get them all to create a new kind of music that would be rock and roll and and, uh, Native music, uh, jazz and Native American music, and he just wanted to experiment and try, and I don't know, maybe it worked for some people, but it didn't really work for me, but the people that I met on the project, I've ended up being good friends and working with them the whole time. And so I guess the break that I got was when the Denver Center Theater in Denver was going to put up the show Black Elk Speaks. And uh, I mean, Black Elk Speaks, the book to me is, it's almost a guiding book. It helps me, you know, I love that book and I learned a lot from it. The life of Nicholas Black Elk has always been fascinating to me. And when I was in my late 20s and 30s, I was just so influenced by it. So when Denver Theater put up the show Black Elk Speaks, they asked if I would be the music director and the composer for it. I guess that's how it all started. That was kind of a big big break for me. We played the Denver Theater. We opened the Denver Theater two seasons in a row, and um, they extended us, and then we played the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, and that's when um, the musical director for the West was in L.A. He saw the show, and he approached me, and um, I worked with Ken Burns on those movies, and very similar circumstances for Unto These Hills. And Unto These Hills is a history of the Cherokee Nation. Yeah, it's historical drama. They had done this show since 1949. It's the second oldest outdoor drama in the country. But it was done not by Native people on the Cherokee Reserve there. And so it had ballet in it. It had fake words. It had fake songs and everything in it. And they, you know, they wanted to be proud of the show. They wanted to redo it. They wanted it to be a show that they could go to um, take their families to. And so they asked a director from Los Angeles, and um, he brought me on board. He's a native director, and uh, I had worked with him before with the American Indian Dance Theater. And he asked me to write the music for that, music direct that show. And um, they had a native choreographer, and we rewrote the whole show with the Cherokee people there. You know, they helped us because we wanted it to be accurate. For, this is probably the sixth year now since the rewrite of it. They call it a retelling, they call it. <laughs> Here you are, you go out to Denver for Black Elk Speaks. It's your first time composing for a show, and you're the musical director. What was that like? Well, I grew up just a couple hours outside of New York City. And so when my friends would take me to the theater, they would go see 42nd Street or 
Broadway shows that were very, very Broadway. And it was fun, but I said to myself, you know, if I'm going to drive all the way to New York, I'm going to go to a jazz club. <laughs> the theater experience didn't move me at the time, you know. And so when they hired me to do Black Elk Speaks and I went out there to do that show, I was just blown away that, at, at the power of theater. It was just a, an awakening for me, almost an epiphany <laughs> as far as theater. I had no clue. But to do a theater piece that touched so many people, and, and I felt so honored to be able to work with the theater to help the Lakota Sioux tell their story in the same way. You know, when I finished doing that show, Black Elk Speaks, I felt that that was like the peak of anything I could ever, you know, imagine. I just thought that was fabulous. And then to be able to have the Cherokee bring me down there and help them tell their story, too, was just like phenomenal to me that I've been so lucky to be able to do that because I feel like, you know, I had a lot of support out there. We had in Denver, we had 21 Native people. The whole cast was all Native people, 21 people from all over the U.S. and Canada. And uh, they, they said it was like a mega drama or something on the proportions of like the Bible. It was huge. It was very big, and uh, it was a great, great show. And in the meantime, you continued to do cabaret. You know, when I was living here, there was a cabaret singer who um, lived here. I accompanied her on the piano, and this is a long time ago. I was only maybe 19 or 20, but I ended up working with her for seven years. She wrote her own music. She was partly a comedian, so it was a hilarious show, and she would totally improvise. We'd improvise songs on the spot. Her whole program was very improvised and so that helped me too her name was Galen Blum and uh, she was just very uh, great at showing me you know how creative we could be and that was my cabaret experience and it's it's funny how it's all come full circle again <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> well here at the Phoenicia Festival of the Voice you're both the director of New World Music and you're performing jazz cabaret well, you know, as as I get older and I think more and more of music being a language and how wonderful it is that I can speak all these different languages, and I don't want to limit myself at all. I want to do everything that there is to possibly do that I can contribute to because along with making a joyful noise in the world and contributing what I can, I'm very big on silence as well. It's very important to me. And um, I wrote a piece for the piano called Can't You Hear the Silence? And I've played the flute out in the woods. And you play a piece for someone out, in, out along the river or out in the woods where it's so quiet. And you stop playing and people can hear the silence. I just think it's, it's a wonderful thing that, that people can hear silence. How did you start singing again? I met these opera singers who moved up here to where I live, and I sang in the choir with them, and they actually came to me, because I, now I'm playing the organ in the Catholic Church again on Sundays. <laughs> it's like crazy. You know, they came to me, the opera singers, and they said, we want to do a concert in the church, and I met them, and we started talking, and we totally got along with each other, and I'm not an opera singer in any way, but um, the way that they sing is very similar to native singing. In other words, it's very much using your whole body to sing, and uh, the air just comes through you. And I, I don't know, it's hard for me to describe, except that I know that uh, 
the cabaret songs and, and the Broadway songs and the um, Stevie Wonder songs and everything I do, I'm approaching it from a combination of all the things that I've learned, whether it's from the opera singers or, or whatever. But now I feel like I'm using my whole body to sing. And, and in the past, I don't think that I ever was able to realize that within myself. And so meeting these, these um, opera singers has just inspired me to sing. And now I just love it. How did you begin working with your current cabaret partner, Ann Osmond? Ann Osmond came to me and she asked um, me to do her arrangements because she wanted to sing. And she needed, actually, she needed a piano part written out for her. It was a Leonard Bernstein piece that she had no music for. It wasn't published. She couldn't find anything. So she gave me this recording of an orchestration of it. So I had to transcribe and create a piano part from the orchestration. That's how we met about seven or eight years ago. And so over the years, she would come over and give me more music to do, more music to do. And so again, simultaneously, while, while um, doing her arrangements, I was meeting these opera singers and starting to sing. And so when she came over to the house and started singing, I started singing along with her. And we realized that our voices just blended so well. It's just, it's just so much fun to take these songs and create them for both of us. And, you know, we work together on the arrangements and the different harmonies. And I just love exploring her voice, which when she sings it in a lower alto range and I sing it, my voice in a high tenor range, there's just something magic there. It's just fabulous. So we just, we just have a great time and, and we work really, really hard to just, again, I, my commitment is to just make it the best that I can possibly do it. You know, this is what interests me, and that is how difficult it is to be able to support yourself when one is an artist of any sort, and the juggling that everyone has to do to be in that world. Well, when I was in New York, the New Yorker had a little thing, in it, a little blurb in the um, section on the, the nightclubs. It said... A musician's life is very complicated. Make sure you call ahead to the clubs to see if anything has changed. <laughs> and I cut that out, and I put it on a Xerox machine at the time, and I blew it up, and I kept it on my wall because I knew how complicated it was. So I, all I can say is that if, if kids come to me, you know, and they talk to me about how on earth you make a living in the music business now, it's like you absolutely have to wear so many hats. I teach, I teach jazz piano and piano at the community college two days a week. You know, I work down in Cherokee, but that's only for the summer. Uh, I set the show up in the spring, and it runs all summer. I uh, teach at home. I compose whenever I can. And, of course, I, I try my best to get my music and my recordings out there. So every once in a while, you know, I'm, I'll get a little royalty check for something that played on a movie or a film or something like that. So I'm always doing that. I'm always looking for opportunities to get my music into things. I just finished them playing on a film for HBO, and uh, it's called Man vs. Ford. M-A-N-N, and Jonathan Sheffer was the uh, composer. So I played on that. And so little things like that. I have a good friend out in uh, Washington State, and she's doing the same thing. And we just call it layered income. <laughs> you know, we, we can't count on any one thing, but we just have to keep the ball rolling and keep the layers coming in. So one thing will cover for another as we go along. 
It always seems like there are at least two jobs that you have because there's the creating, but then you really do need to be an entrepreneur. Well, and also, you know, and I've heard so many musicians talk about the reason that they don't last or continue on is because the actual performing part of it is just a small amount of time you get to do. And that's why I appreciate it so much. And I commit myself to having the best time that I possibly can when I'm up there singing in front of people or doing anything, working with kids or anything. Because I do do that too. I do educational programs as well in the schools and I do native programs with the kids. And so that's a big part of what I do too in different schools. But um, so many people, you know, they don't get to perform much. They spend all their time on their publicity, calling for work, following through for work, you know, and that's, that's one of the hardest parts. You told me about a wonderful experience you had as an audience member when you were younger and the impact that had on you. Can you share that? I was only 18 or 17 or 18 years old when my friend uh, Ross took me. That was uh, Ross Rogers. His father was a jazz trumpeter, and he took me to uh, Williams Lake Hotel because he loved Buddy Rich, and he wanted to take me to see him. And uh, we went down to the hotel, and it was along this lake. It was a beautiful summer day. And um, we got there so early because we were so excited, especially he was so excited, that um, all the tables were reserved. There were no tables left except for one table, dead center, two tables back. It was unbelievable. And we said, is this table taken? And they said, they said um, well, the people reserved it, but then they canceled. So we were so early, we sat right there. Buddy Rich came a little early. We went over and said hi to him. And, talked to him and I sat there and it was my first time ever hearing a live big band and I was just in tears because it was the Buddy Rich big band as well <laughs> and I'd never heard anything like it before in my life and it just it changed me forever. I was playing at the Waldorf Astoria for a private party. I was in another room and I um, finished playing the party and I came out and I just wandered around the place and I ended up in the grand ballroom. And this guy was singing in there, and I listened to him. I didn't recognize him. At the end of his set, he put the microphone down on the front of the stage, and he sung a cappella in the ballroom and just blew me away. And it was Tony Bennett, and I didn't even know it. And that made me the hugest Tony Bennett fan ever <laughs> from that day on. You know, the healing energy, whether it's native music, traditional music, whether it's jazz, or whatever, it's something that people need because it vibrates. It, it, it just goes into your soul and just heals. It helps. There's an elder that helped me a lot. He's gone now, but he was in Vancouver. And he took me up to all the longhouses. We went to all the longhouses, and he showed me the songs and the dances. And, and I, I wanted to learn everything. And, and he took me out to the coffee shop. And it was only at the coffee shop where he could ask him questions. <laughs> and uh, Vince Stogan was his name. I said, Vince, um, like, what's the most important thing to you in life, you know? And he worked with his wife. They were healers for the nation up there in British Columbia. And he said, the most important thing for me and mom, he called his wife mom, he says, is just to help other people. And so I feel like I was three years old playing the church songs when I was a kid, and I've learned that language. You know, that's been my language. I'm, I'm a musician, composer, whatever you want to call it. But that's my gift I've been given, and that's my commitment to myself to make that um, what I want to share, what I want to help people. So if I can sing and just make people feel good on a day when they're not feeling good, or, you know, it's, it's limitless, absolutely limitless what you can do. That was musician and composer Dennis Heary. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Native American Traditional Song, Ink Pata, 
Dakota Lullaby, performed by Dennis Yuri from the album The Hawk Project. Excerpt from You'll Never Get Away From Me, composed by Julie Stein, with lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, performed by Ann Osmond and Dennis Yuri from their album Optimistic Voices. Excerpt from Cherokee Hoedown, composed by Dennis Yuri, performed by Dennis Yuri, Jay Unger, Molly Mason, and Steve Rust. Excerpt from the traditional Joseph Honor song, Chief Joseph's Theme, performed by Dennis Yuri with the Black Elk Voices and Mattias Goal from the West soundtrack, used courtesy of Sony Classical. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov, but we're taking a Thanksgiving break next week. We're returning on November 29th with music legend Mel Tillis. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link in our podcast page. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.